the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Afternoon Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to answering your Bible questions. And hopefully we'll do that by taking your phone calls at 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature of the free KSLR mobile app. You'll be connected directly to the studio producer. And because it's Wednesday, we got some stuff going on here at Calvary Chapel. I like to keep you informed tonight. Um, um, the first of a two-part study, um, really important study, by the way, Second Samuel chapter 7, and the theme is sort of when God says no, and usually when God says no to us is when we have the biggest difficulty and find ourselves in the biggest set of problems, um, but really, really a practical study. So that's tonight here. You can watch it at calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock, or you can join us. We're not too crowded on Wednesday nights, so you can come and join us. We have uh, children's church going on, so your children will be cared for. Um, Just a great evening to spend some time in the Word of God. Spring break for a lot of you, so maybe you've got some time off. Uh, The other thing I want to mention is, uh, obviously tomorrow, Thursday, Paula will be live in studio with me for the date day edition of the program, but tomorrow is going to be a really special edition. Uh, We're going to have um, some of the ladies from the Women's Retreat. We did this last year and got a really big response. And so some of the ladies from our women's retreat just returned are going to uh, be on with uh, with Paula. I'll just kind of shut up and host the show. But um, we'd love to have you join us tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Ladies, especially for you, it's a great day uh, to... Uh, if you need encouragement to receive it, if you need some answers or direction, not just Paula, but tomorrow the other ladies will be able to share their heart with you as well. Okay, one more time, 340-9585. We love your calls because you're more interesting than I am. Here's our first question from Jack from our email inbox, and these are questions that we knew we were going to get. Uh, Stephen Hawking, a famous physicist, also a famous atheist, just died. How should we as believers respond in love when someone in our presence speaks highly of him? How may we lovingly turn this into a witnessing opportunity? Jack, thank you for that last question, the last part. How may we lovingly turn this into a witnessing opportunity? You know, too often, and if you are active on social media, I'm sure you've seen it. And since I'm not, I'm only guessing it's there because I kind of know what the flow and the pattern of, of social media is when things like this happen. Christians are talking about how he's burning in hell and others are angry about that and uh, it just seems like we Christians take too much delight when somebody dies in their sin 
and are consigned to an eternity in hell, and it's not something that we should be delighted about at all. It needs to break our heart. Now, again, I realize the personal responsibility that Stephen Hawking and others who reject Jesus Christ have, but God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. So neither should we. It breaks his heart. And remember, as Christians, we're supposed to have his heart. So rather than say uh, unkind things, well, you know, you speak highly of him, but he's in hell. Um, what we need to do is is follow Jack's lead here and lovingly turn this into a witness, witnessing opportunity. Uh, here's my first thought, uh, Jack, and, and it doesn't mean it's the right thought or the only thought that's appropriate for sure. Um, you know, David wrote that a fool says in his heart there is no God. Uh, Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. In that context, is always much more is required. And people that are given these brilliant gifts like Stephen Hawking had, this nearly unmatched intellect, they are accountable to God and are going to answer to a greater degree, greater accountability than people that don't have that intellect. It's almost like I can imagine Stephen Hawking meeting Jesus and saying, uh-oh, I'm, I was wrong. And Jesus opening the books. We know the book of life is going to be opened and the, the individual book of our lives. And Stephen Hawking's book, Jesus is going to say, I, I gave you such wonderful gifts. I gave you such magnificent intellect, unmatched. And this is what you did with it to turn from me instead of using this intellect to turn to me. And Stephen Hawking won't be able to answer. He won't be able to respond. And Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Now, the way to turn that lovingly into a witnessing opportunity is to turn it into a conversation about Jesus. You know, you're right. Professor Hawking was brilliant, but it doesn't appear that he used his brilliance to accomplish anything good. And when an intellect contemplates, when an intellect destroys the faith of literally millions of people, what value is there in that? And then what I would do in that conversation is I would then say, do you know that Stephen Hawking isn't in hell because he's an atheist? He's in hell because he rejected Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And that always gives you the opportunity to share the person that you're talking with their need for Jesus. You see, it doesn't matter how smart you are. First Corinthians chapter 13. The famous love chapter begins with we can know things, we can solve all mysteries, we can do miraculous things, but if we have not love, we're just making noise. And so, Jack, that's what I would do. I would turn it into a, as smart as he was, he missed out on the most obvious thing. And a lot of times you get a response, well, you know, if he was that smart and he didn't believe in Jesus, why should we? Because he was not honest enough to find out to investigate personally if Jesus was true or not. And I think that's where we need to go when we're witnessing to people. It doesn't matter whether I'm right or you're right. It doesn't matter whether Steve Hawking was right. The only thing that matters is this. Are the claims Jesus made about himself true? And if they are, then there's no virtue in rejecting what's true. So, Jack, uh, that's the best I can do. I just hate it when Christians are sort of delighting in the fact that, well, now he knows he's right. And again, he does. He stood before Jesus. He, he does know that Jesus is true. But I can almost picture the tear running down Jesus' face as he says to Stephen Hawking, depart from me for... I never knew you. I wanted to. I tried to. One of the things that I'm completely confident of is this, that there were people in Stephen Hawking's life who were believers and who tried to convince him 
he will be like everybody else without excuse. And that, Jack, is always a sad, tragic moment. Hope that helps a little bit. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app, uh, Rich. He says, does regeneration precede faith? Uh, and he says, thanks, Rich. Um, Rich, that's a um, sort of a, a Reformed or Calvinist perspective. Um, the doctrine, their doctrine of total depravity would suggest that since we're dead, we can't do anything. We're not capable of anything good. And so to believe in Jesus is obviously something that's good. And so it has to be that in order to get saved, we have to be saved. That's what uh, this this kind of uh, Calvinist speculation leads to. No, faith precedes regeneration. We are saved by faith. Believing in Jesus Christ, Abraham was credited with righteousness because he believed God. Ephesians says we're saved by grace through faith. Grace is unmerited favor. So it's not that you're saved and then you believe because that's never what God's economy is about. It's always believing and then receiving. It's a very important principle to understand because if you get that wrong, then what you've got is a God who's saving people just sort of little doses. Okay, you're saved, but now you've got to believe. And that's contrary to what the Word teaches. So faith always comes first. Where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, there is a theological construct, Rich, that uh, a non-Calvinist uh, would would uh, would view as correct in this question. Uh, the theological term is prevenient grace. And what that means is it's um, God in the person of the Holy Spirit coming alongside of you and convicting you of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And of course, in order to get to the righteous part, he's got to convince you about Jesus. So in the book of Acts, there's three experiences every Christian has with the Holy Spirit. The N in Greek, it's E-N, not I-N, it's E-N. And that's when you believe in Jesus and he comes inside you. There's the epi, the E-P-I. And we would say in English, uh, when he comes upon you in power. But prior to both of those, Jesus said that it's good that he goes away because when when he goes, he'll send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, Counselor. And his job is to testify of Jesus. And Jesus said he will, as I said earlier, convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. So that's the very first experience any believer ever had with Jesus. It's when the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and begins sort of pricking our conscience. But that's not a salvation experience. That's just making you aware that the things that have always been going on in your life, sort of, they've always been okay, but now you just feel convicted about them? Well, why do I feel bad about doing that? That's the Holy Spirit. And then you get to this place where you realize, you know, I'm in trouble, I'm a sinner, and that's when the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes and points to Jesus. And then when we say, Jesus, I believe, that's when he comes in us, and once he's come in us through obedience, he comes upon us in power over and over and over. So I hope that explains it, Rich. Uh, Faith always comes first. Faith is the precursor. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's one from Kirby from our email inbox. Uh, A couple of questions about the Ark of the Covenant. Why did God allow the Ark to disappear? He knew that Jews would return from Babylon. Did they not need it anymore? Is there spiritual significance to it not being around anymore? Was the opening of the Holy of Holies when the curtain tore at Jesus' death uh, have any bearing to the fact that the ark was not there? Uh, and then he says, or she says, I'm curious. Um, you know, the, the ark, obviously, it's the object of the Indiana Jones movies. It has forever been an object of curiosity. Uh, it is thought in Jewish circles that the ark was hidden in the days of Jeremiah when the Babylonians were overtaking the city 
Um, you know, there are um, many, many underground tunnels in the ancient world, and um, it was supposed that it was removed, and nobody knows where it is, but it was removed through one of those tunnels to, to ensure that the uh, Babylonians didn't get it. There are other theories that it's been in Ethiopia for um, um, hundreds and hundreds of years, and they're guarding it in a place. Now, the truth is, God hid it. The next time we see the ark, it's going to be in heaven. The reason that it was hidden, the reason that God would have hid it, the same reason he hid Moses' body, is because he knows what the proclivity of human nature is. And what we would do is we would find it, we would worship it, just as his people did. They sort of had their God in a box, and that was never what God intended. His presence in the ark, and it was a figurative presence. God didn't live in the little box any more than God lived in the temple made by Solomon. Nor does God live in a church, nor does God live in us, in our human bodies. Is not a little Jesus running around inside us. But his presence is there. And the Old Testament ark was a symbol or a picture of the presence of Jesus with his people always, even to the end of the age. And, of course, when he came in us and upon us in power, that's when we understand the presence of God. So the ark is is, uh, hidden. It's not going to be found. I can promise you that. Uh, just as Noah's Ark isn't going to be found, and as uh, you know, all of these ancient artifacts um, carry so much weight in people's minds and lives, uh, God says, I, "I want you to worship me, not a box, not a cup, not an ark. I want you to worship me." And people still looking for things. They always have been, and they always will be. Um, yes, God knew that the Jews would return from Babylon. In fact, we know that it was 70 years that he was going to keep them in captivity because they owed him, Israel did, for uh, uh, violating the law of the Sabbath for the land for 490 years. They owed God 70 years. The land would rest for that 70 years. And that's why the Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years. Um the question, did they need it anymore? We always need the presence of God. But the presence of God has no value if you're not doing what God said. And of course, the reason the Babylonians uh, overwhelmed the city of Jerusalem is simply because they were disobedient and God was disciplining them. So the ark is still here. I guess that's a significance. It's not just a spiritual significance. It's a, a physical Significance because God is in us and with us, but we don't need the box anymore. It's in heaven, and we'll see it when we get there, and I'm sure there will be so much that we discover about it that we could never have possibly imagined. So I hope that answers your question. Kirby, the last part when the curtain tore at Jesus' death uh, did have any bearing to the fact that the ark was not in there? Um, No, but the Holy of Holies... Ark or no ark was a place that no Jew could go except one, the high priest, on, only on the Day of Atonement. So when that curtain tore, I want you to think about this for a moment. An everyday regular Jew in the city of Jerusalem would be able to see right in the Holy of Holies for the first time ever. It would be terrifying to them. I'm sure many would turn their eyes away, but we also know human nature, and there would be many who would be curious and look. But they penetrated the curtain, 18 inches thick. For the very first time, they could see what they've been worshiping. And of course, the point is Jesus saying, I'm him. I'm the door, I'm the bread of life, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. The ark is a picture of our Jesus, of course. Kirby, thank you. I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Anne. 
she wants to know why doesn't God stop kids being born with special needs or physical defects and if God doesn't want people to be gay why are they born that way and um, we live in a fallen world Um, this isn't the world that God created Uh, as wonderful as the world that we live in is imagine what it was like when God looked and saw that everything was good really really good and yet when humankind chose to sin to rebel against God, he said, did he not, that in the day you eat, you will surely die. Now remember, the name Adam means mankind. And so it wasn't just Adam as the person he was who would begin to die, and we know that happened. But mankind also began to die. And the ground was cursed. Romans chapter 1 says that the world is groaning in creation. Groaning, awaiting its redemption. So the bad things that happen, the physical defects, the special needs, the terminal illnesses, that's just part of being in a fallen world. He doesn't stop it until the time is right to be stopped. And of course, that's going to happen when Jesus returns with you and me. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 19. The second part of your question, I I really want you to reconsider the way you think. Um, God doesn't want people to be homosexuals. It separates them from him, the very reason he sent his son to die. God hates anything that separates us from him. But what would make you ever think that God made them that way or that they were born that way? Now, we believe the media. Well, I've always known I was gay from the time I was two. I knew that's nonsense. These are choices that we make. Now, same-sex attraction, that's a result of the fall. We live in a hurting, fallen world. But nobody's born gay. You're either born one gender or the other. And by the way, we're not born confused about that either. The confusion comes as a result of not being willing to accept the fact of who we are. If I'm attracted to somebody of the same gender, then I've got to decide, do I want to fulfill the lusts of my flesh or do I want to obey God? And heaven or hell? is the reward of the consequence. So we're not born that way. God didn't create us that way. Again, there are people who have same-sex attraction. But don't blame that on God. Blame that on a sinful world. And then for those of us who are real believers, and what we've got to do is we've got to explain to them that now they have a choice to make. Do they want to serve the God they were created to serve? Do they want to please Him? Or do they want to please their self? their flesh so hope that helps Ann. don't buy the lies don't buy the emotional appeals I've always been confused I was born in the wrong body I've always been attracted to the same sex we have to teach people to say no to themselves so they can say yes to Jesus let's go to San Antonio now and take a call on line one Bertha thanks for holding you're on the air hi I have a question why do people deny the pictures of pictures of Jesus? If you know, my father died, and I took pictures of of, of him uh, before he passed away, and I'd show them to priests, preachers, and they say not to show the pictures. Why is that? Why, why uh, Bertha? Let me understand. Why not to show the pictures of Jesus or the pictures of your father? Of Jesus and uh, my dad's spirit. Yeah. I mean. Jesus went to my house when my dad passed away, well, the day before he passed away. And when I showed it to, to the, the priest, he said to keep them to myself. And I consulted a different priest, priest and they said the same thing. Why is that? Well, because there's no, there's no picture of Jesus that's accurate. And I think that's intentional. 
Jesus was very ordinary in appearance. Jesus, none of the pictures that we have of him uh, rendered by artists have anything to do with the reality of who he was. But here's the thing, Bertha, that that I think you you need to consider. If you know your Bible, and I don't think you do based on, on what you just said, if you know your Bible, you know that Jesus doesn't come into a house because uh, a father dies or his spirit doesn't come in uh, just because somebody else is leaving. Jesus, his spirit is in this world now. His spirit is crying out for you now. And he wants you to trust him, to believe in him. The real person, Jesus Christ, who's available to you and to me in the person of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son. And he died on the cross so that when your father died, your father would go to heaven and be with him forever. But he had to believe the same thing is true for you. It's the same thing that's true for me. And I'm a late in life Christian, so I got um, a lot of time that I wasted. But once I believed that I had eternal life. So Bertha, it's not spirits and Jesus isn't coming through pictures. Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. Thank you, Bertha. We've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday edition of the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Wednesday program, 340-9585. Bertha, if you're still listening, um, let me just share one other thing with you. Um, If you would pick up your Bible and read it, You wouldn't need to go to priests to get answers. The confusion that you're experiencing would be replaced with answers to your questions. It is the word, the word, the word. So embrace it. Get to know it. You won't need a picture of Jesus because the Bible is the most complete picture of Jesus in the history of our world. And by the way, 100% 100% accurate. Here's a question from Denver. I don't know if it means the person asking it is from Denver or if his name is Denver. He says, I heard a pastor say that there were three types of love. My question is about sexual love. If God wants us to love others, why is sexual love wrong? Denver, the three types of love that you're talking about that, that um, are declared to us in Greek... Uh, our agape love, that's the love of God. It's only God's love. We're incapable of that kind of love. Uh, the phileo love, we get our English word Philadelphia, the love of brother. Um, it's a friendship, but much closer, more intimate kind of love. And then in Greek literature, there's eros. Uh, and that's love that's expressed sexually. Now, you asked about eros, and then you say, if God wants us to love others, why is sexual love wrong? Well, it's because God gives us boundaries to experience that eros love. And that's in the confines of a heterosexual marriage, one man, one woman, together. And sex is fun. Sex is exciting. And God delights in it because he created it. I mean, think for a moment about animals. They procreate. Um, for just to procreate. But it seems only in humans did God make the sexual experience thrilling. An experience that could last a, a, a good length of time. An experience that would help two become one and get closer and closer. Now, since God made it, he gets to make the rules surrounding it. And God said that the only holy expression of love sexually is within the confines of marriage, one man, one woman. Now, we have so perverted this 
because we've got sort of the thinking that your question suggests, well, if God wants us to be happy or God wants us to love, then why can't I express love sexually? It's because he said so and he makes the rules. You see, whenever we ask questions like this, it's almost like Lucifer when he fell, when he said, I will cast my throne above the throne of the Most High. He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to make his own decisions. He wanted to be God, and he wanted to do so without facing consequences. Well, we're exactly the same way. We want to have sex. We know how it feels. We know uh, what the world tells us about sex, so we explore, and then somebody like me says, well, sex is wrong. That's sin. That's immorality. And then everybody gets mad. Well, I'm no different than you. And Well, remember, God made us sexual beings. He owns us, Denver. You're calling or writing to a Christian radio station, assuming that you're a professing Christian. God doesn't need your opinion on whether he's right or wrong. God needs your obedience. I had somebody just this past week say to me, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to make Jesus explain why I couldn't have sex. No, you're not. When you're in the presence of Jesus, you're going to be on your face before pure holiness. And we need to understand that God's the one in charge, that we don't get a vote. And then like every other person, Denver, what we have to do is we have to decide, am I going to serve me or am I going to serve Jesus? And you can't serve both. can't have two masters. Jesus himself said that. So who's in charge of your life? Is it you or is it him? If it's him, he gives orders. You know, we go to work. This always amazes me. We go to work. I always, we have a large military contingent in our church. And I tell the men and the women in the military all the time, you guys are without excuse. I mean, you get orders from the military and you drop everything and go. When God gives you orders, you argue with him. And because you understand orders, because you understand rank, you're even more accountable than the rest of us. Truth is, we all know that having sex with somebody we're not married to is wrong. Now, we can sin so much that our hearts get hard and we don't want to think about it, but we all know it's wrong. First time I ever had sex outside of marriage, I knew it was wrong. I knew it. But then you just decide, well, it doesn't matter. And because we don't believe, we keep doing what we want, and that's when the consequences in our life become burdensome. Well, Denver, the same thing is true for you. You have no right or position to ask God this question. Why is sexual love wrong? Remember my grandmother used to say to me, it's wrong because I said it was wrong. And we don't like those kind of answers. But remember, God is the one who does it. So Denver, I hope that helps. Let's go to Kyle, Texas, and talk with Philip. Philip, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Yes, thank you, Pastor Ron. I have I have two questions for you, uh, if you could help me with. Uh the first one is my wife was talking to me about tithing, and uh, she was really strong on the 10% that the Bible specifically talks about. You have to tithe 10% uh, or it's not blessed. And I listened to uh, your show a while back, and you were talking about that, and I was going to see if you could help me uh, where you have the answers for that in Scripture so I can share that with her. And the second thing I was going to ask you was, my parents are Catholics, and my stepmom was telling my kids about Jesus, tell, saying that when we die, we don't go to heaven, that we stay asleep until he comes back. And that's not my understanding at all, so I wanted to find out uh, if you could help me uh, so I could clarify that. And I'd appreciate it. Thank you for what you do, brother, and I'm going to listen to you on the radio. My pleasure, Paul. Thank you very, very much. Um, let me let me uh, deal with the second one first, um, Philip. Uh, you know, one of the things I would do uh, with with your parents or in-laws—I'm not sure who you said it was—but I would tell them um, that they have no right to 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 speak to your kids about those things. Uh, the Bible is very clear: to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
um, Paul said to live, uh, to die is, is, is better by far. To, to, to live is to, to live for Christ, but to die is even better. Why? Because you go to be with Jesus. And Paul had been to heaven, Second Corinthians chapter 12. Paul knew what awaited him in heaven. And he's the one who wrote it. To die is gain, to live is Christ. Second Corinthians 5 is where it says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So uh, there's no such thing as soul sleep. There's no such thing as purgatory. And that's where they're coming from, from a Catholic perspective, uh, Philip. There just isn't any place in the Bible that even suggests that just going to sleep is what happens after we die. Now, I will say this, that in the time the Bible was written, sleep was a euphemism for death. And um, I'll give you an example. When Lazarus, Jesus got word that Lazarus was um, sick. Um, He waited intentionally until he was dead. And then his disciples said, well, um, we're going to to Bethany uh, to see Lazarus. And he goes, "Well, well, my friend Lazarus sleeps. And they said, well, if he sleeps, then he'll get better, Lord. That's a good thing. So we don't have to go. And Jesus was speaking of his death, and the Bible says that very clearly. He explained that to his disciples. No, Lazarus is dead. So there's church traditions and lots of superstitions about soul sleep, uh, Philip, but they're just not true, and there's no biblical basis for it at all. So that's very important. I think a, a more important question is you need to tell your parents to stop messing with your kids uh, you're going to raise them as born again Christians um, with regard to tithing um, Philip there's, there's um, no place at all in the New Testament where we're told as New Testament Christians to tithe the law of the tithe 10% a tithe means a tenth the law of the tithe Uh, was given to Jews. It was under the law of Moses when Jesus was in the upper room. He said, uh, the Last Supper, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. And when he did that, he canceled the old covenant. So the tithe was Jews were required to give 10% under the law. 10%. Now, there were other tithes. They had to give a tenth to to, to the Levites. They had to give Actually, it was an eighth to eight eight percent or so to to the Levites, but there was a temple tax that they had to pay. So they were actually under law required to give um, just short of thirty percent of their income. Now remember, it was an agricultural uh, world that they lived in, so it would be their grains, the, the the fruit of their harvest, those kinds of things, and they would share those parts with the Levites and with. Uh, to support the Jewish temple. Um, but it was 10%. Even in when Jesus was there, Philip, uh, there was one occasion when Jesus' disciples were watching as a long line of people, very wealthy people, uh, were putting money in the temple treasury, paying their tax. And there was one lady who put in two mites, not a tenth at all, but she put in two mites. It was all that she had And Jesus said, this woman put in more than all of the others. Now, that was a picture of what would happen after Jesus' death and resurrection. There is not a single New Testament passage. Now, Jesus, his ministry was Jewish. He was speaking to Jews under the law when he said, you tithe and it's right that you do so. He wasn't talking to you, Philip, or to me, nor nor to your wife. In the New Testament, we're told to give with a cheerful heart. We're told to give in relationship to what we bring in, to the increase. We're told to give on a regular basis. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. But we're told to give freely. Barnabas gave everything he had. And in Ice and Sapphira lied. They gave half of what they had, but they said they gave everything they had. If they would have said, we're going to give half of everything we have, everybody would have been thrilled. They would have been alive. So we don't have to tithe. We're in a completely different covenant. Our covenant is grace. Now, there's something else I want you to consider, Philip. 
If law, a law that condemned us, required 10%, what should we give under grace? I think the answer is everything. That doesn't mean we have to give all of our money. But here's what you ought to do, you and your wife together. Read through the Bible. There's no mention of the tithe in the New Testament. Say, Jesus, you've given everything for me. How could I not give you everything? And then, Philip, when you spread your resources out before the Lord, you can say, Jesus, look how you've blessed us. And we want to be good stewards of your increase. Thank you for blessing us. But it's not 10% his and 90% yours. You say, Jesus, this is all yours. You gave me the ability to make money. You gave me the skill. You gave me the brain to go to work and pick up a check. It's all yours. How much of it do you want? And he'll tell you. He'll tell you, if you want to start giving 10%, I hope you grow out of that. But don't give anything until you can give with a cheerful heart. There's no reward at all. There's no blessing at all for giving begrudgingly or for giving after being compelled to do so, giving out of guilt. Give because God gave everything to you and you're so grateful. And here's what I promise you, it'll change your life. Instead of dying for you, Jesus, 90 cents for me. Dying for you, Jesus, 90 cents for me. You can say, look at what you've done, Lord. And Philip, when he can trust you with his money, when you'll be a good steward of it, when you'll ask him what to do with it, then you'll be in a place where he can bless you abundantly so because he will know that you can trust him. So I hope that makes sense to you, Philip. It's not what we have to do. It's what we get to do. It's not how much of our stuff should we give God. It's how much of his stuff can we use to bless others. Being generous is a blessing. It really is a blessing. So, Philip, thank you. I hope that helps and hope you and your wife come to a meeting of the mind on that. 340-9585, Daniel writes, what should the Christian view of removing people from life support be? Uh, Daniel, I don't think there's a Christian view. I, I just think there's a view of somebody's on life support and they're um, being kept alive artificially by, by uh, a machine. Uh, by removing life support, you're simply leaving the time of death in God's hands. So I don't think this is something we should condemn. I don't think we should be hard on those people who simply can't let go. I, I think we ought to encourage them to do so. But I certainly don't want to be kept alive by artificial means when I'm ready to go, when God's ready to make my heart stop beating or to make my brain stop working. I want to be with Him because that's when I'll really be alive. So just keeping somebody breathing isn't life at all. And we shouldn't hasten anyone's death. You know, there's a big move in our world for euthanasia or mercy killing. Dying with dignity, they call it. Nobody dies with dignity if they go to hell. So just do what the person who's lying there directed you to do. If they say to remove me, remove them. And that's what I would be doing if Paula were in that situation. I wouldn't want her to have to make that choice. So I would just say to her, she's listening to this program now, we've already talked about this, of course, is just take the machine off and let God decide when the time to go is. He knows. So I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Charlotte. Uh, I just saw the movie Samson and wanted to know how his strength was gone when his hair was cut. Uh, Charlotte Paula was out of town uh, at the retreat this week, so uh, uh, my producer here in the program uh, took me with his two kids, and we went to see Samson. So I don't get to the movies very much, but we got to go see Samson. 
Uh, I thought it was kind of a cheesy movie. It was okay. Um, but they made Samson way too moral. Um, Samson's story is one of the saddest in Scripture, a, a story of wasted potential, um, a story of what could have been but wasn't. Um, so other than that, it's okay. But his strength wasn't gone when his hair was cut in the sense that there was some magical power in his long hair. One of the things I did not like about the movie is they portrayed Samson as big, strong, buff guy. He wasn't. If he was big, strong, and buff, everybody would have known the source of his strength instead of trying to find out what the source of his strength was. Samson was ordinary. I imagine he was a lot like I am, only younger. <laughs> and just ordinary. But he had an extraordinary covenant with God. And God, not his hair, Charlotte, God was the source of his strength. And the cutting of his hair was nothing more than symbolic of the fact that he'd walked away from God completely. He violated his Nazarite vow. This terrible, terrible line in the book of Judges about Samson says, And the Spirit departed from him, and Samson knew it not. He was bound with ropes. He thought he would get up as he did all of the other times. But he finally turned so far from God that he had no more relationship with God. Thus his strength was gone. His hair was a symbol of a vow. His hair being cut was a symbol of that vow being broken. And the picture, the warning for all of us, Charlotte, is that when you walk away from God, you may feel like everything is okay, but the truth is you're impotent. There is no source of strength. Apart from me, Jesus said you can do nothing. And Samson is an Old Testament picture of that very real New Testament truth for you and for me. I tell my church all the time that what happens to Israel in the physical realm happens to New Testament Christians in the spiritual realm. When we get a little distance between us and Jesus, Charlotte, we mess up everything, and Samson's life is a picture of that. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. We get a little bit, almost five minutes left in the program. Maybe a quick call if somebody has it. Here's an anonymous question: uh, The Bible says God knows the day of our death. Is that true? And if He does, why should we care about eating healthy or exercise? Anonymous. We read these things and. We, 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 we kind of impose our own perspectives on it. The fact that God knows the time of our death doesn't mean that he causes our death on that day. Now, here's the thing. If I'm healthy and I exercise and try to eat right, and I'm two out of three there. So if, if we're trying to do that, well, then God knows that barring unusual circumstances, the date of my death is going to be later than the date of somebody's death who doesn't take care of themselves. So God doesn't cause us, but of course he lives outside of time and space, so he knows everything. But that doesn't mean he causes it. It also doesn't mean that we can't do things to extend our health. I've shared on the program before, I used to be obese. Before I got saved, Jesus told me to get my body in shape. Had I not done that, uh, I wouldn't be alive now. And God would have known the date of my death was much earlier than the date of my death is really going to be. I hope that makes sense. So we have to care about eating well and exercising because we have to be good stewards of this body. I talked to Philip about being good stewards over finances. Well, we've got to be good stewards over these bodies that God has given us as well. Priorities have to be right. Bodily exercise, Paul wrote to Timothy, profiteth little compared to spiritual training. But it doesn't mean there's no value in physical training. We have to eat well. We've got to practice self-control. If we do those things, then we can be used by the Lord. And if you choose to eat unhealthy, if you choose to go without exercise, then what God knows about the day of your death is that it's going to be sooner than it needs to be. So anonymous, I hope that makes sense to you. God doesn't cause it. He just knows about everything. 
Here's the last question we'll get to today. This one is from Ruby. Um, she says, should we celebrate Easter since it was originally a pagan holiday? Ruby, I get these questions every time as we approach Easter. Easter is April 1st this year. Keep uh, everybody posted because it's coming quickly. Palm Sunday, of course, the 25th of March. And yes, we should celebrate Easter. It doesn't matter what it began like. Uh, it was a fertility ritual. It was uh, pagan to be sure. But what God does is he takes pagan things, including pagan people, and he renews them and turns them into his people, to his things. And so what a better way to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ than the, the source of your new life and mine, the validation of our faith and what we believe as Christians. What better thing to do than to take a pagan holiday and turn it into a day where all of the world people are saying, Jesus is alive. So yes, we should celebrate it, we should rejoice, and we should do it always. Don't get caught up in how something began knowing, I don't know you, Ruby, but I'll only speak for me. I was a pagan, and God redeemed me. He can redeem a holiday as well. Hey, while we're doing that, when music is about to start, let me remind you that we will be having two services on uh, Easter Sunday at the Judson High School Performing Arts Center. That's April the 1st, 8.30 and 10.45 will be our services. We'll talk more about them as we get a little bit closer, but we'd love to have you come in the radio audience. I'd love to have people uh, meet me and, and uh, get to see you in the face. And by the way, people always get saved at our Easter services, so invite unsaved family members and friends. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Bible study tonight. Paul alive in studio with the ladies tomorrow. God bless. We'll see you 4 o'clock tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.